6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 24 through 28. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Gerbal and the Mahunims. And the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt, and he strengthened himself exceedingly. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. So he strengthened himself. He's doing well. He's doing well. And he built towers in the desert, digged many wells, had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husband and also in vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. So Uzziah was really a rancher or a farmer at heart, but he's doing well as a king. He's honoring God, and because he's honoring God, God is prospering him, and he's strengthening the land. Moreover, Uzziah had a host of fighting men that went out to war by bands according to the number of their account by the hand of Jael, the scribe, and Messiah, the ruler, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The whole number of the chief of the fathers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600. Those are the leaders. And under their hand was an army, 300,000 and 7,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. So this is... Well-trained divisions, very substantial. And Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and harbegians and bows and slings to cast stones. Harbegians is a, apparently a term for, most, most people understand it to be body armor. There's a couple other possibilities, but that the, seems the, 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 the most consistent consensus. Um, Shirion is the Hebrew and, and the most common translation is for body armor. And he made in Jerusalem engines. We're speaking of war engines here. Invented by cunning men to be the, on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows. Visualize those as a giant crossbow. And great stones. Catapults. Withal. And his name spread far abroad for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So this guy is doing pretty well. Got the place strong. He's fortified the place. Um, he's got uh, agricultural prosperity, and uh, he also apparently is very innovative. Help. Uh, he's, he's got uh, some advances in military uh, hardware. What do you think is going to happen to him? What's likely to be his the chink in his armor? Anyone want to guess? I heard it. Right on. Who said it? Pride. Good for you. Exactly. Boy, we all need to realize that there's two times we're vulnerable, when we're really weak and also when we're really strong. And uh, but when he was strong, guess what? His heart was lifted up to his destruction. And one of the things he did, and evidence of his pride, is carried there in verse 16. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. You say, well, what's wrong with that? That's just a religious practice? No, 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 no. 
from the beginning in the Torah, it separates the royal line, which is the line of Judah, from the Levitical line. And they're not to cross. The priests were not to be kings, and the kings were not to be priests. There's an, there are some exceptions to that. One of them is a guy by the name of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And uh, he would disappear in obscurity if it wasn't for Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, where it's emphasized that Jesus Christ is a priest and a king after the order of Melchizedek, in the sense that he combines both together, a king and a priest in one. He's unique in that regard. There are only three people like that in the Scripture. Jesus Christ, Melchizedek, and who else? Us. Kings and priests. Remember that John points that out in Revelation 1. Peter points that out in his letters. Also, he points out that it's emphasized in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. It makes a big thing. I've mentioned it in passing, so you're just sensitive to it. In any case, though, here, Uzziah, as part of his ego trip, chose to ignore that proscription and went and offered burnt incense upon the altar incense. And that is not a good idea. Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore, that's eighty, priests of the Lord that were valiant men. These are not just, these are not pet namby family guys. These are, these are serious guys. And they withstood Uzziah the king. And it was appropriate that they do, of course. They withstood the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests of the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn increase. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Okay? Now, how do you think God is going to keep him out of the temple from now on? He immediately becomes a leper. When Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was wroth with the priest, leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense dollar. Well, that's one way to keep him out of the temple, because if you're a leper, you cannot enter the temple. So that was, that's Leviticus 13. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence, yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, separate house in other words, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now many people who fool around with try to reconcile the kings fail to recognize that Jotham co-reigned with him for quite a few years as we'll see here in a minute. So Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So he's sort of stepping in like a co-regent here. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first and last, did Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, write. And so Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the burial which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his stead. So here's a guy that was doing pretty well. All in all, you, 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 you would label him a good king. But he, he let his pride get in the way and tarnish, if you will, his, his record. Let's take a look at his son. There's a chapter on him, but it's a short one. Jotham was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem because there's a co-regency involved. His mother's name also was uh, Jerusha, 
the daughter of Zadok. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. So he did pretty well, but the people still are uh, under too much leniency here. They don't, they're not doing what they should be doing. He built the high gate of the house of the Lord, and on the wall of Ophel he built much. Moreover, he built the cities and the mountains of Judah and the forests. He built castles and towers. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And children of Ammon gave him the same year a hundred talents of silver and ten thousand measures of wheat and ten thousand barley. So much did the children of Ammon pay, pray to him both the second year and the third. So they, they had fallen behind their payment, so he, he uh, uh, conquers them and brings them up to, up to snuff here. And uh, so... Apparently they, did, they then responded for about three years, after which their burden apparently was lessened a little bit. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, are, lo, are they not written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah? His, he was five and twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. Okay? And Jotham slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, Ahaz is another story altogether. So we're going to now look at Jahaz, uh, Ahaz in chapter 28. Now, when you look at all the kings of Israel, and uh, you realize that nor the northern kingdom went from bad to worse, and the other, other lasted a couple centuries longer, I just want to call your attention. We're talking about Ahaz in the southern kingdom, don't confuse him with Ahab, a very, very bad king in the north. They're not contemporaries. Many people get Ahaz, Ahab. Ahab, husband of Jezebel, early in the northern kingdom, the, their nemesis was Elijah. We're now in the southern kingdom, much, some generations later, Ahaz, different guy. Not a cool dude, but a different guy. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. David his great-great-great-grandfather, but anyway. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made... Mo now that's bad news. See, Israel was idolatrous. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Balaam. And so, it's... Uh, now there's... If you're starting to reconcile these things, he reigned for... co-reigned about four years with Jotham and then alone for 16 years. And so he was an evil king. Ahaz is in the south, an evil king, following the pattern of the northern kingdom, which were wicked. And we're about now, the northern kingdom was on the verge of falling to Assyria. They're almost over. The northern kingdom is about to cease to exist. But moving on. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of Hinnom, and uh, so, boy, where to start on this one? Anyway, Valley of Hinnom, and burnt his children in the fire. He burnt his own children, offered them to these to Moloch and all of this. After the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord did cast out before the children of Israel, he sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. It's hard to grasp the insanity of paganism 
It's hard for us to imagine people uh, making those kinds of commitments. We can visualize people not taking the living God seriously and indulging in side nonsense of some kinds, but somehow the commitment to this kind of stuff is astonishing. And uh, we're having trouble in our old culture today trying to understand Islam. Most people have no grasp of how virulent that commitment to insanity is. And uh, it's, just, uh, it's just it's something beyond our imagining. But here he, here he is sacrificing not other people's children, his own children, into Moloch. This, they'd heat this bronze idol till it was red glowing and then put the children in the arms of it. The Valley of Hinnom. This was associated with the Ammonite god, Molech, and vehemently condemned in the law in Leviticus 18 and 20 and Deuteronomy 12 and elsewhere. It was practiced primarily in the valley that's south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a ridge in those days. It's not gone more than that. But there's a, the Kidron Valley was to the east, and the Teropian Valley was to the west. There was a valley along the south called the Hinnom Valley, and uh, just south and west. And uh, it get, the word geh is, means valley. The valley of Hinnom is Gehinnom. And because there was this continual burning for two reasons. This is where they did all the uh, uh, burning sacrifice of the children. It was also the city dump and was constantly burning with trash. So the Gehinnom, the valley of Hinnom, becomes idiomatically a label of hell. In fact, I shouldn't say hell because you might think I'm talking about Hades. No, no, the, the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. Make a distinction between Sheol, which is the Hebrew, and Hades, which is the Greek, which represents the abode of the dead, both good and bad. Gehinnom, Gehenna, as Jesus would say it, was the ultimate repository of the unsaved. Okay. And of course, with, because of the fires there, this gives rise to the, 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 the term Gehenna. As a term for hell as we think of it, that is, hell. The word hell uh, in the sense of the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Not hell in the terms we sometimes use that term for Hades, which is something a little different. Anyway. Wherefore, the Lord God, his God, delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. Here he's getting judged by, again, God using their enemies. Delivered him to, in the hands of the king of Syria, and they smote him and carried away great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus, and he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, that's the northern rival, who smote him with great slaughter. So Ahaz's sins were great against God, and so this is the third time the Arameans or the Syrians fought Judah. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, which were all valiant men, because they had forsaken the God of their fathers. Pekah, the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil. Oh, let me, let me back up. I'm, I've just shifted. I'm reading from Isaiah. I want to show you something about Ramalia that's in the book of Isaiah. This same allusion is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. Where Isaiah says, Because Syria, Ephraim, and son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, 
and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. You say, okay, that's pretty interesting. Let's assume you're a very zealous student. Who is Tabeel? Find Tabeel in the Bible. You won't, because it's encrypted. Okay? It turns out, I'm quoting from Isaiah here, the word Tabeel is encrypted. This is an encryption in Isaiah 7 that's well known to students of cryptography. We encounter the scheming of Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel. They're confederating against Ahaz, the king of Judah. You get the picture? Northern kingdom in Syria, they're conspiring against Ahaz and Judah. In verse 6 of Isaiah, it says, The plan is to establish the son of Tabeel as king. Who is he? The Midrash, the Hebrew commentary, notes that Tabeel is the name Ramalia encrypted using the method of Albam. What on earth is Albam? If you take the Hebrew alphabet and you lay it out and take the second half of it and put it under the first half, you now have letter pairs that you can match up. And uh, if I take the first letter, I substitute the, the, the lambda. If I take the beth, the second letter, I take the mem, and so forth. If I, by pronouncing A-L-B-M, Albam is the name given to this form of encryption. How does it work? Well, if I take Isaiah 7, 6, the word is tabeel. So I take the mem, I, I substitute the matching one. In each case, I substitute the matching letter and uh, take the matching one again. This time it works the other way. And the word Tabeel by Albaum transpositions is the word Ramalia. No big deal to someone that's a student of cryptography. It's provocative that there's an encryption in the Bible. And uh, this is taught, if you take a course of the CIA in cryptography, this will be mentioned as one of the historical uses of, of uh, tra simple transpositions. There's another form, there's an, there's, this is one form, there's another form called Atbash. That's where you take the Hebrew alphabet, you take the second half and put it under the other one backwards, okay? And so, and by pronouncing this, it's A-T-B-S-O-Atbash is the attempt to pronounce the first four letters. Um, in Jeremiah 25 and 26, we have Shishak, which actually turns out to be a, a, the uh, encryption of the word Babel or Babylon. And uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah 50, 51, the same method is also used where heart of my enemy really turns out to be the Chaldean, the, the Chaldeans. No big deal, no profound insights here. To someone that's a student of cryptography, it's just a curiosity of ancient historical use of encryption. To someone who recognizes that the book we're dealing with has supernatural origins, these take on another thing, what, what a, a rabbi would call a remes, a hint of something deeper. And this leads into a whole study of secret writing tucked within the biblical text, which is beyond our scope here, but I just wanted to mention that this, this Pekka, Ramalia thing, be aware of. Let's get back to Second Chronicles 28. And Zikri, the mighty man of Ephraim, slew Messiah, the king's son, and uh, Zikram, the governor of the house, and Elkanah that was next to the king, and the children of Israel carried away, captive of their brethren, 200,000 women, wow, uh, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. So this included a lot of casualties for Ahaz in his own court. And uh, so the northern kingdom took 200,000 
uh, from Judah up to their capital, Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Obed. This is really interesting. And he went out before the host that came to Samaria and said unto them, Behold, because the Lord God of your fathers was wroth with Judah, he hath delivered them in your hand, and ye have slain them in a rage that reacheth up into heaven. And now ye purpose to keep under the children of Judah and Jerusalem for bondmen and bondwomen unto you? But are there not with you, even with you, sins against the Lord your God? Now hear me therefore and deliver the captives again which ye have taken captive of your brethren for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then certain of the heads of the children of Ephraim Azariah the son of Johanan Berechiah the son of Meshilamoth and Jezekiah the son of Shalom and Amasa the son of Hadlai stood up against them that came from the war. There's, there's, they're, they're, saying, they're trying to stay don't take prisoners from Samaria. He said unto them, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither, for as we have offended against the Lord already, ye intend to add more to our sins and to our trespass, for our trespass is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the congregation. And all and the men which were expressed by name rose up and took the captives and with the spoil clothed all that were naked among them and arrayed them and shod them and gave them to eat and to drink and anointed them and carried all the feeble of them upon their asses and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren, and then they returned to Samaria. So the leaders gave the prisoners food and clothing, led them to Jericho, where they could be repatriated back to their own country. What's bizarre about this What's ironic about this is Israel, the northern kingdom, listened to the Lord, whereas the southern kingdom didn't. You see the inversion? It's very strange. But one, of course, that God honors. At that time did King Ahaz send to the kings of Assyria to help him. See, he won't quit. Now he's trying to make an alliance with the kings of Assyria. For again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. So... So he wasn't satisfied, Ahaz wasn't satisfied with the kind overtures from the northern kingdom, his, his, his competitor, or rival, whatever. So he's negotiating uh, with Assyria. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser was the king at that time. And uh, so Isaiah, the prophet, had tried to keep Ahaz from returning, to doing any of this, but he wouldn't listen. Philistines also had invaded the cities of the low country and of the south of Judah and taken Beth Shemesh and Ajalon and Gedaroth and Shoko and the villages thereof and Timnath, the villages thereof, and Gizmo and also in the villages thereof, and they dwelt there. For the Lord had brought Judah low because of Ahaz, the king of Israel. For he had made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord and Tilglath-Pelezer, the king of Assyria, came... Unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. So, in other words, he made a deal with him, gave him his bribes, but he didn't do anything for him. He wouldn't help him. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. He accepted his bribes, but why should he help him? He's, 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 uh, he's weaker than he is, so he doesn't, he doesn't sweat it. The Bible tells us not to put trust in man, doesn't it? In the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? This is that King Ahaz. You feel the chronicler just emphasize. 
For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him, and he said, Because of the gods of the kings of Syria help them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were all the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem, and every, and, and every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to, unto other gods, and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. You know, it's astonishing to compare the behavior of using Ahaz's example with the commitment of Solomon when he dedicated the temple. God says, All, as long as you do what I tell you, you're going to win, and I'll be with you. You don't do that, you're going to get clobbered. And the whole history is the repeat the same thing. Now the rest of his acts and of all of his ways, first and last, Behold, they are uh, written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, even in Jerusalem, but they brought him not into the sepulchres of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead. And uh, boy, that's, that's the good news here. So we're going to go from Ahaz to Hezekiah, and we're not going to have one chapter. We'll spend uh, 29, 30, 31, 32, four chapters on Hezekiah in the next session. He will turn out to be not only a good king, he'll be one of Judah's greatest kings. Um, so the assignments for next time would be to read Second Chronicles 29 through 32, Isaiah 36 through 39. Isaiah has these interesting four chapters. The first portion of Isaiah deals with the uh, 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 judgments and things. The last Part of Isaiah is messianic. There's a little four-chapter historical insert in Isaiah. 36 through 39 covers all this, which is also covered in uh, uh, 2 Kings 18 through 20. All that covers Hezekiah. A lot of colorful, interesting things occur in Hezekiah, and we'll take that up in our next session. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music